Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we are going to talk about more basketball rule changes. The first episode we did like this was way back in episode 20 when we covered significant rule changes that happened during basketball's first 50 years. Well, today, we are going to talk about significant rule changes during the second 50 years, from 1944 to about 1994. Now, one of the things that I have always loved about basketball is that the rules are changed in an attempt to make the game better and more exciting. And for the most part, that is what's been done. I know there are some who would like to see more physicality brought back to the game, and honestly, I wouldn't mind seeing that myself, like back in the 1980s and early 1990s. But overall, most of the changes were made because someone recognized a problem that needed to be fixed. Again, I don't want to make this into some sort of an old school versus new school thing. I appreciate and love every era of basketball. I really do. So let's go ahead and take these rule changes in chronological order. Our first rule change for today goes back to 1944. The new rule said that a defensive player could not interfere with the shot once the ball was on its downward arc toward the basket. Today we call that goaltending, and pretty much everyone is aware of it. It is a standard rule all over the world. But prior to 1944, a defensive player was allowed to knock the ball away when it was on its downward arc. This meant that the defensive player could hang out near the basket and just jump up and knock away any shot just before it hit the rim. And there were two players who took advantage of this tactic before they changed the rule. It was George Mikan of DePaul University and Bob Curland of Oklahoma A&M University. Both players dominated games just by knocking away every shot that came near the basket. Opposing coaches screamed and hollered, but at the time, it was perfectly within the rules to play that kind of defense. And that is why the new rule against goaltending was called the Mikan rule back then. In fact, I just gave a more detailed version of this story just a couple of weeks ago as part of episode 39 on the history of the block shot. So if you want to hear more about this particular rule change and the story behind it, go out and check out episode 39. And I believe that overall this was a really great change for the game. Scoring went up once goaltending was disallowed and that made the game more exciting. Now on to the next rule. In 1949, a rule came in that gave the defensive team both of the inside rebounding positions during a free throw. Again, just like the previous rule, this is something that we take for granted today because this is how we set up for free throws at every level of basketball all over the world. But prior to this rule change, a defensive player would take one of the inside positions and an offensive player would take the other inside position near the block. 
What this did was encourage teams to purposely miss the second free throw. Rather than just take the one point for a made free throw, the shooter would purposely miss the free throw to the side of the rim where his teammate stood. In other words, the shooter would try to bounce the ball off the rim directly to his teammate who would put the ball back for a basket for two points. That way, you could get three points from a single trip to the free throw line. One point for the first free throw, and then two points by missing the second one and having your teammate put it back. As you can imagine, the powers that be wanted to discourage this tactic, so they figured that giving the defensive team both of the inside rebounding positions would discourage teams from trying this. And they were right. Teams rarely use this tactic anymore unless it is some sort of late game situation where you have only a few seconds left in the game and you really need to score two points. In that situation, the shooter may try to bounce the ball off the back of the rim in an effort to get a long rebound back to the shooter or something like that. In 1951, the NBA widened the lane or the three-second area from 6 feet to 12 feet. This was another rule specifically designed to limit the effectiveness of George Mikan. As you all know, an offensive player can only stand in the lane for 3 seconds before he has to move out of the lane to avoid a 3 second violation. With the lane only 6 feet wide, a player could stand only 3 feet away from the rim to still be outside the lane and camp out. And this was true of Mikan. He would receive the ball in the low post and just take one step for the dunk or one step for a short hook shot. But making the lane 12 feet wide, guys like Mikan now had to stand no closer than 6 feet from the basket. And this made things a bit tougher for the big guys. Of course in real life, Mikan adjusted fairly easily and continued to dominate just as much as he did before. He just had to shoot his hook shot from a little further out, which was not that big of a problem for him. 13 years later in 1964, the NBA widened the lane even further to 16 feet where it is today, and that was done specifically to limit the effectiveness of Wilt Chamberlain. They did it for the same reason they did in the previous decade. In the 1950s, they thought that the lane left Mikan too close to the rim and they had to do something about it. The Minneapolis Lakers had won two of the previous three championships, and basically all of the other owners wanted something done about Mikan in order to give their teams a better chance at winning the league title. Well, in the 1960s, they thought the same thing about Will Chamberlain. He was simply too close to the basket and something needed to be done to limit him. If you're keeping track, this is now two rules specifically put in place to limit George Mikan's effectiveness. So, let's keep going. In 1953, the rule was changed that if a player was fouled in the act of shooting, he had to shoot his free throws. Prior to this rule change, the shooting team had the right to waive the free throws and just take the ball out of bounds on the side. It was the counter move to what we now call a hack-a-shack. Many teams today purposely foul the worst free throw shooter on the other team if he is anywhere near the basket. The defensive team is basically counting on that player to miss both free throws so that the defensive team can assume possession. But back then, the offensive team could simply take the ball out of bounds if they chose to and try to get the ball into the hands of a better shooter and try again. And they also would do it with a fresh shot clock. That move nullified the hack-a-shack. But then again, the powers that be decided that if a player got fouled, he had to shoot his own free throws. They could no longer waive them. They did not like that a team was able to protect their worst free throw shooter. So now the hack-a-shack is back on. 
I wonder how coaches would use this rule today if they were, again, allowed to waive their free throws when a bad shooter got fouled. I mean, any time that Shaq would get fouled, or Dennis Rodman, or anybody else who's bad at free throws, their team would just waive the free throws and get it in the hands of somebody who could shoot them. Well, enough of the what-if game. Let's go ahead and take a break, and I'll be right back with more rule changes right after this. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back to the show, and let's keep going with the rule changes. In 1958, we got the Chamberlain Rule in college basketball. This rule outlawed the offensive player from interfering with the ball when it was inside the imaginary cylinder above the rim. The reason that this was called the Chamberlain Rule was that if any of his teammates shot the ball and the ball bounced above the rim, Chamberlain would simply jam it back to the rim for two points. At 7'1 and with great leaping ability, he was unstoppable. There were other times when Chamberlain could tell that his teammate's shot was a bit off. He would jump up and guide the ball into the basket with his hand. This rule changed and made him grab a proper rebound and then he would just stuff it back in the basket anyway. It really didn't change his effectiveness, but it was still a good rule change. I think you have to give the ball a chance to go in without messing with it. Now let's move on to the next one. Ten years later, in 1968, we get the Alcindor Rule. This rule was named for Lou Alcindor of UCLA, and as many of you know, he would later change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The rule completely outlawed dunking in the college game. The NCAA, the governing body over college athletics, was worried that Alcindor would completely dominate college basketball if he was not limited in some way. So, no more dunking for anybody. But this kind of backfired. It forced Alcindor to perfect his skyhook, which he used to great effectiveness in the NCAA, where he was named National College Player of the Year three times, going along with three national championships, and then with that skyhook, that led him to become the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. After nine years of this ridiculous rule, the NCAA allowed dunking back into the college game. In 1969, we saw a significant change to the women's game. It changed the rules so that women's teams now played 5-on-5 full court. And you might be thinking, isn't that just normal basketball? And the answer is yes, that is normal basketball. But prior to this rule change, the women played with six players on the court for each team. Three players stayed in the front court against three defensive players. And the same thing on the other side. Players were not allowed to cross half-court, so you had three players who were full-time offensive players and three players who were full-time defensive players. If the defense got the rebound, they had to pass it across the half-court line to one of their three offensive teammates. Essentially, you had alternating games of three-on-three going on at each end of the court. But now the women would play with the same rules as the men, and that was a very good thing. In 1979, the NBA introduced the three-point line that had been previously used in the ABA from 1967 to 1976. Prior to that, every shot from the field was worth two points no matter how far away you were from the basket. But the three-point line would add a new aspect to the game that, as we now know, creates a lot of excitement. 
International basketball would add the three-point line in 1984, and college basketball added it in 1986. And this was a needed change. Not only does it give a team that extra point for making a basket from long distance, but it also opened up the court. In the late 1970s, the players were getting taller, longer, and more athletic, and it was starting to get really crowded in the middle. When basketball started in the late 1800s, most players were under six feet tall and slow. Now, in the NBA at least, you had a court filled up with a bunch of seven-footers with cat-like reflexes. Something had to be done to open up the middle and create more space and movement. The three-point line was the answer. And now we have guys like Steph Curry and Damian Lillard raining shots from long range. It has led to a very different style of basketball than had been previously played. But again, let's keep moving. In 1994, college basketball reduced the 45-second shot clock to just 35 seconds, which was introduced to speed up the game. And this one was desperately needed. If any of you are old enough to remember what college basketball looked like back then, it was a much slower game, as teams would purposely use the entire shot clock before taking a shot. It was painful to watch. Today, the college shot clock has been reduced even further to 30 seconds. So, there you have it. Those are some of the significant rule changes from basketball's second 50 years of history. As you hear all of these changes being listed all at once, you get the sense that, on the whole, these changes were done thoughtfully and with the goal of making the game better. At least I feel that way, and I don't always agree with every rule change, like the one where college basketball outlawed dunking for nine years. That was just ridiculous. But on the whole, over the course of the game's history, it has become better. Well, that's it for today. Come join us next time when we share the story of how nobody wanted Bob Cousy when he came out of college. And Cousy wasn't even sure he wanted to play in the NBA. He had a job offer in a corporate setting that was going to pay him more money than what the NBA was offering. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our Facebook page. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts, as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care, and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. 
Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.